This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, in the arts news culture wars this week, in breaking news, I cracked the code. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. There's an old magician's dictum that if you want to hide the secret to a magic trick, print it in a book. Well, that advice about hiding secrets probably goes double for radio commentaries. Now, if you want people to ignore what you're saying, do a radio commentary about it. I mean, you could tell friends that you're going to reveal the secret location of Bluebeard's treasure at 7 p.m. tonight on the radio, and they'd be all like, well, I have a Zoom meeting at that time. Maybe you can send me a link later to the broadcast. Anyway, after much thought, I've decided to reveal in this little commentary the secret of one of the world's most perplexing problems. Now, you know how radio is. It's just you and me here, and you can keep a secret, and I can keep a secret. So I figure the secret's safe just between the two of us here. So let me put it out here bluntly. I've cracked the code. Hmm? Cracked the code. Okay, maybe not the code, but a code. And as far as I know, I'm the first and only one to crack this particular code. It wasn't as if it hadn't been tackled before, Lord knows. There have been dozens of attempts to crack it. Hairbrained schemes, some of which may have even sounded logical and promising at first. But none of those solutions stood up to the acid test of successful experiment like mine did. All other solutions faded into the distance like a mirage that shimmers on the desert's dust. Only my solution remained. Only my solution cracked the code. Okay, a code. But let me not get ahead of myself. I would like to claim that the answer came to me in a flash of blinding light, or in a dream, or perhaps was whispered to me by some holy man at the end of a long and perilous mountain climb. But I would be indulging in romantic fantasy were I to maintain such. No, the truth, as it so often is, was more mundane, grittier, sweatier, as Thomas Edison so aptly said, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. How true that is. So, like Thomas Edison were my efforts, I could have used a whole barrel full of deodorant. It would be, perhaps, foolish to proclaim myself a genius. The word is bandied about so freely and carelessly in this present slipshod generation, so much so as to almost lose all sense and meaning of the word. And yet, in this one instance, in this one happenstance, it would be perhaps false modesty and a dereliction of the historical record to downplay my achievement. Through constant toil, testing, tedious trial and error, sleepless nights, days when my bones cried out for rest, still I continued on, persevering against the greatest of odds, first trying this, then trying that, over and over and over again. But you ask for what? For what were all my labors, investigations, blood, sweat, and tears for? And I tell ye, verily, the avocado.
The avocado, you say? All for the trivial avocado, you say? I say, nay, a thousand times nay, and no, and yet. Not just for the avocado. For humankind, I say, for our children and our children's children, and for their descendants everlasting. And perhaps, too, for the ancestors who now, smiling down upon us, may rest more easily, knowing that that which had tormented them in their all-too-brief sojourn on this mortal coil could now, at long last, be put to bed. Rest! Rest, perturbed spirits. Please, listen as you've never listened before. In normal discourse and activity, one cautiously cuts the avocado in half. And rather than greedily devouring the entire avocado, like the judicious ant and not the profligate grasshopper, the acolyte places but one half of nature's gift carefully on the plate to enjoy what Mother Earth hath given unto us. One hemisphere of verdant green to eat. But then, one hemisphere equally verdant to carefully store in some manner. And here is the crux of the matter. No matter in what way one stores that half-globe of delight for a later meal, when one returns to it, it has turned into an unrecognizable foul thing, scarcely of this earth, marred with all manner of mold and rottenness, like a cabinet member in office for more than two weeks. With the pit or without the pit, in the baggie or exposed to the winds, in the refrigerator or by the hearth, immersed in unnamed secret liquid potions, or dried under the heat of diverse planetary suns, the sickening result is still the same. Base, blight, decomposition, decay, and heart-rending waste. The gods mock our pitiable efforts to stop the hands of withering time, to stop the process of the rotting of the avocado. That is, until now. Listen up, guys. Here's what you do. Cut the avocado in half vertically. Now, the pit will be on one side of the avocado. That's the half you're going to store. Now, get yourself some seventh-generation, unbleached, recycled paper towels, the brown ones. No, believe me, it's not going to work with just white paper towels. Forget that bounty crap. Get your seventh-generation, unbleached, brown, recycled paper towels. All right? Now... With one sheet, wrap up the half avocado with the pit. Put it in your refrigerator. Eat the other half. Now, come back a day later, and if the avocado wasn't too ripe to begin with, when you go back to your refrigerator and unwrap the half with the brown unbleached, recycled, seventh-generation paper towel, you will have a very respectable-looking half-avocado. Yes, his great-grandma used to say, God never sends us a problem more than we can handle. Now go and Godspeed, and wipe that green junk off your lips. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express, with host, Rary Miller. This is the Voice of America, Washington, D.C., signing off.
biggest names in pro-U.S. propaganda, particularly when it comes to U.S. imperialism, is Voice of America, particularly Voice of America in X language, broadcasting into X country, giving you all kinds of falsehoods and twisted truths in order to prop up the U.S. empire. Well, here's, here's a very interesting story. We're talking about Voice of America in America. They have now been penalized for attacking their own journalists' right to free speech. That's right. They were found hindering the First Amendment rights of their own journalists. Now, this is significant because Voice of America is a company, a separate company, but overseen by Congress and funded by Congress. Now, it's it's better for me to get a more exact view of what exactly the complaint was that was made and what the judge ruled. In a 76-page ruling, U.S. District Judge Barry Howell found that Michael Pack, a CEO of the U.S. Agency for Global Media, and his team violated the First Amendment rights of its journalists. She also found that Pack and his team showed an extensive pattern of penalizing those U.S. AGM and network employees whom defendants regarded as insufficient supportive of President Trump. Howell's ruling bars Pack and others from continuing any actions that would curb VOA's editorial independence, including taking personal actions against journalists and editors attempting to influence content by communicating with individual journalists or editors investigating purported breaches of journalistic ethics. Defendants' extensive pattern of penalizing those of U.S. AGM and network employees whom defendants regarded as insufficiently supporting President Trump has resulted in the termination, discipline, and investigation of multiple employees and journalists. So the story here is that the Voice of America, with a guy, the guy running the whole global media thing, who was appointed by Trump, has been censored and removed from his job for attacking people for not supporting Trump enough. There you go. Now, the response to a lawsuit filed by five senior executives of a U.S. AGM whom PAC had fired or suspended. In August, the senior executives say that PAC and other top employees had sought to interfere with their work because it didn't align with the political interests of the current U.S. President, Trump, and asked for a preliminary injunction to stop the interference. The Voice of America is one of multiple U.S. government-funded broadcast outlets that you know brings news to people you know all over the world, as I said previously, and a lot of CIA money is in there, too. It was created in 1942 to combat Nazi propaganda, according to its website. Now, shortly after PAC took the helm of the job in June, uh, the VOA's top officials resigned en masse. I mean, they all just walked out. Now, later that month, uh, PAC fired four heads of organizations overseen by the agency in what was called the Wednesday Night Massacre. In other words, everybody who wasn't loyal to Trump, everybody who had a sense of what the First Amendment was, and people who know what journalism is, either walked out because this was complete nonsense, or they were fired because they didn't support Trump enough. Now, is as if this wasn't enough if this wasn't damning enough as it is you know who park is he was best known as a documentary filmmaker with a very heavy conservative bent as you imagine he would have and a former ally of steve bannon the breitbart steve bannon the former white house strategist steve bannon he was the president of the conservative Claremont Institute from 2015 to 2017. So this reveals a bit of more light onto what kind of interference there was on behalf of, I don't know, can you really say it's conservative values? Because it was, this was really more of a pro-Trump thing than it was conservative values. Obviously, Park is very heavily 
on the conservative side. That much is beyond question. But what he's specifically being lambasted for here is his attacking people for not supporting Trump. I mean, you could be conservative and not support Trump. Wish there was more people like that. Uh, well, I wish there was more conservatives like that. But specifically, he was getting rid of people for not supporting Trump enough. And there you have it. That's pretty much the Trump administration in a nutshell. And that's that's your, your U.S. tax dollars that are paying for it. For those of you who actually make enough money that you can actually afford to pay taxes. I'm not criticizing for people not paying taxes. I'm not criticizing people who are too poor to pay taxes. I'm criticizing people, you know, who are rich enough to pay taxes and don't. Obviously, there, there's a very big a difference in that case. So this, another big example, another uh, another disgusting thing by the Trump administration, showing that uh, even interfering in the media in order to make sure it was supportive of him and not, you know, freedom of speech or journalistic ethics. Reporting from Niagara Falls, Jason Unruh. on Arts Express, 40 Years a Prisoner. Mike Africa Jr., one of the few survivors of the police assault and bombing of the move home in Philadelphia when he was just six years old, spent subsequent decades fighting for his parents' release. Political prisoners sentenced to 100 years each for the ensuing shootout, during which a cop was killed, though how he died, possibly by friendly fire, has always been questioned, and his parents never directly linked. Finally, able to free his parents after 40 years, Mike Africa phones in from Philadelphia to talk about the continued struggle on their behalf to exonerate them, as they're now subjected to 60 years parole. First, some scenes from 40 Years a Prisoner, the new documentary vividly illuminating his story, then Mike Africa. I've been going into prison for 38 years because my mother and father are both in prison. Four minutes of gunfire, one Philadelphia policeman killed, and it was over. The members of the Back to Nature group move had been routed from their house. The judge sentenced each to 30 to 100 years in jail. That's my mama. When she was arrested, she was almost due to give birth to me. When she did give birth, it was in a prison cell. So this would have been her cell? Yeah. This was a counterculture Philadelphia hadn't seen before. The MOVE organization experienced so much hate and anger from the system. It was a situation that everybody knew was going to explode. It was only a matter of time. It's one of the few things I've seen that I'm never going to forget. They were so aggressive and so angry. Nobody sided with them. Get that death penalty back, put them in the electric chair, and I'll pull the switch. This was the move house. It was demolished. So there was no evidence. When I learned that they were actually in prison, I might have been 13 years older. I started looking for something that would show their innocence. I wound up doing that for over 25 years. The Move 9 have been up for parole for the last 10 years. The denial of parole is violating their constitutional rights. What can I say about it? What can I do about that? Except just keep on pushing. Handcuffs keep tightening like eyes that a bright light is in. Every time I fight, the reason I fight is to not fight again. Every time I fight, the reason I fight is to not fight again. Every time I fight, the reason I fight is to not fight again. Hi, Prairie. How you doing? Okay. Hello, and welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. One of the most moving moments in 40 Years a Prisoner is when your father says to you after his release, 
that he was thinking more about freeing you rather than himself. So glad to finally free you from that burden of fighting, so long for his freedom. What did it mean to you to hear those words from your father? Yeah, you know, it was really powerful because I had never known that he felt that way. I had never heard him say anything like that before. So I was, as the viewer was watching the show and listening to him talk and say that, I was listening to it for the first time too. And it was very moving. I'm, I'm sure that um, I felt it the way that I'm sure a lot of other people felt it. Yeah, and certainly says something about the families of victims who are incarcerated. I'm not sure how much of the other families feel that way. I, <laughs> this may sound a little funny, but I don't think anybody loves their... But I don't think anybody loves... I, I, he's my dad, right? So it's like... I. The love that he got for me, I, I got the greatest dad in the world. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's, you know, that's just how that feels to me, you know. And in this extraordinary film, what was it like for you to visit that prison cell where your mother gave birth to you all alone? That was a, that was an interesting thing. I had heard so much about um, that jail. My, my mother wasn't the only woman, move woman, or family member at that jail. My aunt was at that jail. My grandmother was at that jail um, for move activities. Uh, you know, my family started the organization, so there's a lot of members uh, in that in the group that spent a lot of time in that jail. So over the years, you hear all of these different stories. Some of them are not sad at all. Some of them are fun stories, uh, you know, of good times they had or adventurous things they did. So, you know, there's a certain image that I had in my mind about that, that place um, that developed over the years. So going back there, it was really exciting to, to, to see a place that I had heard so much about, but I'd never visited before. Mm. So part of it was, wow, this is the place that I was born and it's a jail. But the other part of it was, I get to finally see this place that I had heard so much about. Mm. And what about revisiting right now as opposed to then, revisiting the horrifying footage when you were just six years old? of the police bombing, smoke, and police murders of your family all around you. Yeah, you know, that was the hardest day of my life. That was the hardest day of my life in, in, in terms of, like, things that happened that I couldn't control or that I wasn't a part of. Uh, reliving it is always scary. It's always hard. It never gets easier. And, you know, I think about the people that were in that house all the time, Weeks and months go by, years go by um, at a time where I won't miss a day without thinking about the people in the house. I, I, I think about those people every day. Mm. day. Like, yeah, I was just saying, you know, like, people, like, it's not a, like a ghostly or, or, or trauma, like a traumatizing thing to think about the people every day. It's just because of what happened and, and how much I miss them and how much I've and how much I went with them before that confrontation, the police raided our house in Richmond, Virginia, and took, us, took the kids up to an orphanage and, and, and tortured us for 11 days. And the kids that were in the house May 13th were at the orphanage with me, you know, mm -hmm. uh, four years earlier. So, and, you know, to, to, to lose them in that way, is, 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 I, I can't shake it. It's, it's always on my mind, you know, mm -hmm. to, to think that you're finally out of the woods, you're finally out of the, the danger zone when, you know, you make it out of that torturous or orphanage and then end up in a, in a house full of fire and bombs and, and smoke and gunshot. It's just, it's just a horrible life. It's a horrible life to live and, and a horrible way to die. Yeah. So, you know, it stays with me all the time. Now, your parents are free from imprisonment after four decades, but their sentence was 100 years and they were on parole for those remaining 60 years. What do you think it is about MOVE and their political struggles that has accounted for such an enormously incomprehensible punishment? Uh, they, the, the government executed Martin Luther King. Hmm. You know, they had their hands in assassinating Malcolm X. This is the same system, believe it or not. This is the same system or the same mentality that crucified Jesus Christ. We're not special in that regard. The government, the system, attacks people, anyone that stands in the way of them accomplishing their mission. And their mission is to enslave and, 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 uh, and control everything. 
You know, and so MOVE is no different than the Black Panthers mm-hmm. in that regard. MOVE is no different than any other organization that stands up against the system, Earth First, and and and, and um and anybody that fights. I mean, Judy Barry was, was blown up in a car. You know what I mean? Like, so, you know, that's how the government comes to people. Hmm. And you're still fighting for your parents to be 100% free. You made it your mission to get them exonerated. What is the status of that right now? Uh, still, still, we still got paperwork to file and still working on different, different strategies. No, no, nothing's moving right now. Mm. And your parents, what do you feel it is about their political and ideological perspective on struggle that kept them incarcerated for so many decades, but still resilient, determined, and optimistic? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. The, the system does our work for us in a lot of ways. You can't help but resist this thing. In one category or another, everybody resists the system in some kind of way. And, you know, you, 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 you build up a resistance to because of their treatment. You know, if, you're, if you can't get water in the jail, which is common, a lot of people don't understand how common it is that some people in the jail do not have water to drink. The fresh water, I mean, clean water. Yeah. The water that comes out of the faucet in the jail, at the, the, at the jail that my dad was at, uh, smelled like goop and chlorine. Hmm. So, you know, you can't drink it. It's poisonous. The guards that come into the jail are instructed by the other guards not to drink the water. So you got to buy your own water, bring your own water in. Um, and so that's just, that sparks revolution. What are you going to do if you don't have any water to drink? How long can you live? How far can you go? You know, so that, in, in, a, in a lot of ways, is what, you know, keeps these revolutions going. When you, you're just ready to settle down and chill out and relax a little bit, and then you hear about another police killing. You know, you, you just got finished protesting against uh, the killing of George Floyd, and as soon as you sit down on your couch to relax and have dinner with your family, you hear about Breonna Taylor. And then that will protest that, 100,000 people protest, and Oprah Winfrey put her on the front page of her magazine, and Tamika Mallory is out there protesting and giving out great information. And then when she gets home, she sits down and she watches the shooting of another innocent, unarmed black person. Hmm. You know, people could, people could, if people could relax and not have the danger of some type of injustice hanging over their heads, there wouldn't be so many revolutionaries. Revolutionaries exist because the system exists. Now, your parents were able to finally get married last year. What was it like for you to be there for that ceremony? You know, it's like it's like this. When my parents came home from prison, there was like a kind of sort of like a role reversal. My mom would laugh if she heard me say this, but it's the truth. <laughs> uh, it was kind of like I was the parent and they were the kids. <laughs> Because they have been away for so long that, you you know, they don't know how to do these things. They don't have the connections like, like I do, right, because I've just been out here so long. And they haven't. So, so it was for me, it was like giving one of my kids something that they always wanted, but they were never able to get. Yeah. And finally, they were able to get it, and it just made them so happy. I was watching them be happy, and I was just happy for them. To see them get something that they so deserved that they were so uh, deprived of for so long. And one last question. What do you hope listeners to understand about your parents and this documentary, 40 Years a Prisoner? I hope people understand that we are not the only people out there like this. There are so many people that are uh, restricted from their families, like me. And, you know... Uh, there are prosecutors here in Philadelphia that put people in prison for a thousand years, over a thousand years in total throughout all of the people they railroaded. Mumi Abu Jamal being one of them, you know, and you know, he Mumia has kids. He has four four kids, and they haven't seen him in street clothes, some of them ever. And um, you know, he's been in prison for nearly forty years. You know, he has kids, he has grandkids, he has great-grandkids. And, you know, there's so much evidence that points to the fact that he's innocent. However, he's still in prison. And so, you know, it's just important for people to understand that we're not the only ones. There are 2.7 million people in this country um, in prison. 
and that is more than the whole continent of Europe mm. that has three times as many people in the population. Yeah. You know? Okay, well, thank you so much, Mike Afker Jr., for calling into our show, and I will get the word out. Thank you. And can I just have uh, say that people can follow me on Instagram at Mike Africa Jr. And they can go to my website at www.mikeafricajr.com and they can listen to my podcast on the move with Mike Africa Jr. Great. Okay. Well, I'll get the word out. Thank you again. Thank you very much. And 40 Years a Prisoner is now out on HBO. And coming up next on Arts Express, in our literary birthday celebration this month, is English novelist Jane Austen, born December 16, 1775. And phoning in from Nashville is actress Alicia Witt, who currently stars in Modern Persuasion, an update of Austen's novel Persuasion, both stories focusing on the lives of women then and now. And Witt will also be talking about her Orange is the New Black experience. But first, in our Radio Drama Corner, My Truths, an enactment from Jane Austen's memoirs, and what it was like to survive and prevail, not only as a woman, but as a writer back then. Conceived by Bill Johnson and performed by Lizzie Shannon, then Alicia Witt. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. In my time, the real truth for a talented woman was take an elderly, wealthy old man to bed, service him, then wait until he dies. That was the truth for the young, creative woman of my time. Such a young woman would never see a novel published, a play produced, a painting in a public gallery, but she would have a creative life. How did I manage? Because my father was a rector and a teacher, and part of a class known as landed gentry, he did not feel a need to trade me like a cow to another farming family in return for a sharpened plough. I wrote it first to entertain my family, who enjoyed my creative endeavours. And my family was my greatest and most supportive audience. I even had a brother who was my literary agent, who helped get my first novel published. But for all my acclaim in your time, in my time, one of my few positive reviews was by Sir Walter Scott, who praised my realism. I'm told I'm well-read and well-received now. How few artists are recognised in their time, fewer women artists. If your time is different, I'm sure it was a long-fought process. Men have had every advantage of us in telling their own story. Education has been theirs in so much higher a degree, the pen has been in their hands. I should not take on airs that I alone found a way to be published. There were a few women authors in my time and after my time. One in particular found my writing wanting. Why do you like Jane Austen so very much? I am puzzled on that point. I had not seen Pride and Prejudice till I read that sentence of yours. And then I got the book. And what did I find? A commonplace face, a carefully fenced, highly cultivated garden with neat borders and delicate flowers, but no glance of an open country, no fresh air, no blue hill, no bonny beck. These observations will probably irritate you, but I shall run the risk. Miss Austen is only shrewd and observant. It thrilled me that a writer of the stature of Charlotte Bronte would find me worthy of her thoughtful contempt. It was the casual contempt of men I found disheartening. The more I know of the world, the more I am convinced that I shall never see a man whom I can really love. When my father died and my family was in need, I did accept a proposal from a man I did not love. No Mr Darcy for me because it would have meant financial security for my mother and brothers. I declined within 24 hours, and I was greatly relieved. It is always incomprehensible to a man that a woman should ever refuse an offer of marriage. Unfortunately, Sir Walter did not come courting. 
single women have a dreadful propensity for being poor, which is one very strong argument in favour of matrimony. And now I was, in the lexicon of the times, a spinster. But I was quite pleased with my portrait. To look almost pretty is an acquisition of higher delight to a girl who has been looking plain for the first 15 years of her life than a beauty from her cradle can ever receive. I did continue to write, in spite of my family's financial problems. There is a stubbornness about me that never can bear to be frightened at the will of others. My courage always rises at every attempt to intimidate me. If you cannot be born into a loving, supportive family, find one, create one, be one for yourself. I will be your family. from my home in Nashville, Tennessee. All right. What led you to want to be part of Modern Persuasion and a satire about women in the workplace? I, you know, I was in Prague. I was working on the Amazon series Lore mm. when this when this possibility came my way. And I had a video call with the directors, Alex and Johnny, and... I I loved the script. I I had always loved Jane Austen's novels and Persuasion in particular, although it had been many years since I'd read it at that point. And and I just thought, what's not to what's not to love? I mean, to be in New York and get to tell this story of love lost and found again. And I I thought it was beautifully written and. I love the eclecticness with which the original story had been adapted. Um, it was just all a no-brainer. It was like, of course I'm going to do this. And I was grateful to have been asked. And and I love filming in New York City. Um, I, I didn't see it so much as a satire of, of the workplace so much as I, I saw it as uh, an allegory on how, although so much has changed, so little has changed at the same time. And the fact is that women as well as men still prioritize their careers and what they think is most important when they're young sometimes. And they, they may not realize that that person who they fell in love with might be the one they're going to miss 20 years later. So that was something I identified with, and I wanted to have that, to tell that experience, but also to have that experience of the what if, that you could go back in time almost and write what went wrong and find that person that, that you sort of got it right the first time. And what are your thoughts about the Jane Austen novel, Persuasion, that the film borrows from? And did it give you any ideas about the background for your character and this story? I went back and read parts of it again when I was about to film the movie. And I was reminded of how much it had stayed with me. I think just specifically that idea. I've always loved stories that have to do with longing and those feelings deep in your heart that somebody is meant for you, even though the facts around the situation seem to indicate otherwise. And the eternal human mystery of miscommunication that can lead to our lives going in completely different directions. Other books that I love from from a similar time or Wuthering Heights is one of my favorites and Rebecca and um, even War and Peace, you know, and Anna Karenina. Um, just 
persuasion is right in there along with the the books that had really made an impression on me when I read them um, when I was being homeschooled. Um, but literature p- played a really big part in my homeschooling. So I was very familiar with the novel. And how would you say Jane Austen's perspective about women in society back then is both similar and perhaps also different to the women we see in modern persuasion and your character, Wren? I think her perspective, it's, it's hard to distill it into anything because she portrays many different types of women, different ages and different values. And I think what what has changed, obviously, is that most women now consider having a career as being not only a possibility, but a, a likelihood. And that, has, I mean, to think that we lived in a time a hundred years ago in this country where women couldn't even vote. It, obviously, we've life has changed a whole lot since then. But then I think what hasn't necessarily changed, um, perhaps for women more so, is that there's a there's a judgment that I believe is placed on women more than it is on men, and they do choose to balance both a career and a family, particularly when the family is young. Um, I don't have children myself, but my friends who do have talked to me about how they'll be on set and people are always asking them, what are you doing with the baby and who's looking after the baby? Nobody would ever ask a male actor in that same position what he's doing with the baby. Um, That's just an example. And, And I also think there's, women are judged more harshly for some reason if they choose to leave an unhappy marriage when there are children involved. Um, This is more uh, a book that has always meant a lot to me is Anna Karenina, because I think that there's a lot of parallels in that between things that have and haven't changed. But persuasion deals with it as well. Um, You know, there's, there's the the idea that I've always had that whichever parent is miserable, it, it, you kind of owe it to yourself to live an authentic life and not to not to be in a partnership where you're settling for less than what you deserve. And if you've tried everything to make it work and it's not working, it, it or even if it's just not it's not making your heart happy. I think it's a beautiful example to show your children that you value yourself so much that you're going to live an authentic life. That's a great way to lead by example. Mm. But thinking of certain friends of mine who have been in this situation, I can say with certainty that women are judged more harshly for that choice than men are. And anything else you'd like to say comparing women in the film to, say, the Hollywood workplace as a woman? Uh, that doesn't uh, that I, that doesn't really occur to me to draw any parallels there. I think every workplace is its own microcosm, and I wouldn't say that a a film or TV set in general, is this way or that way. Um, It all depends on the production. It all depends on who's running it. And obviously, in recent years, that has shifted dramatically as well. There are behaviors that I think were accepted on certain sets that just are not anymore. And that's a beautiful thing. And I think that's true of, of workplaces all across the world now. There's a drastic shift. So um, I don't know. I, I didn't see any deep parallel there. I just kind of watched it and really enjoyed the humor of it. And Blipper in particular, just watching it again yesterday just made me laugh. The idea that it's an even briefer version of Twitter that speaks to someone's ADHD. <laughs> 
it feels like the sort of thing that if somebody hasn't already invented it, they really should. And we kind of have that, don't we, with TikTok now, with the 10-second video. Um, yeah, I, I just, it made me smile. I loved the fun of seeing those looks and the, the way that the, the sets are, are just designed to make the whole thing feel like a storybook in some way. I thought the lighting was gorgeous. So I found that very enjoyable. And on a different note and a very different workplace, what lured you into Orange is the New Black and getting into your character, Zelda? Oh, Zelda's one <laughs> of my favorite, favorite roles that I've ever played so far. Um, I had wanted to be on Orange for years, and I... I've auditioned for that casting director, Jen Houston, many times for various things. And she had always been, I think, supportive and was looking out for things that I might be right for. But I think I had auditioned once before for Orange for one of the roles and didn't get it, obviously. And, and then there were various other things like on Girls that she brought me in for. And and we were getting down to the final season, and it was in my head very specifically, especially when I worked with Adrian on Modern Persuasion. And as it turned out, Adrian and I had nothing to do with one another in the characters we played on Orange. But she was like, "This is our last season. You better get on it. This is mm-hmm. Your last chance." And and then, I mean, I had nothing to do with it. The audition just came in, and I put myself on tape with my best friend here in my living room. And a few days later, I got the call, and I got the part. Mm. And I was over the moon excited. <laughs> and I also had no idea from that first episode that I was in just how wonderful the character was going to be. But based on the the scene that they gave me to audition with, I I wasn't completely surprised. She seemed pretty awesome. And I just loved her. I found her to be so confident and and so genuinely appreciative of the great life that she had and the fact that she was that money wasn't an issue for her, but she didn't she didn't seem affected to me about that just seemed like someone who also knew what she wanted and saw in Piper somebody really special who, in Zelda's opinion, was with somebody that wasn't treating her the way she deserved. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I just loved her. I loved her. I still sometimes think to myself, okay, what would Zelda do in this situation (laughs) if I need a little boost of confidence? And you once said, I like to play any character that allows me to teach the audience something they didn't know. Please elaborate, and would that apply to modern persuasion as well? Thank you for, for finding that quote. That is, <laughs> that's really the crux of, I think, why I wanted to be an actor in the oh. first place. To, to get to embody a character that is either lots like me or very little like me, um, I'm hoping to both learn more about what it is, different types of humans, you know, different ways that we can be, different character traits, you know, maybe with I care a lot, I I don't know, that's just fun, (laughs) but, um, but, you know, even a dark character has aspects that I I suppose some people are going to relate to. If you've ever taken advantage of somebody even a little bit, you might, you might recognize that movie and think, Oh, I I guess I kind of did that a little bit too. Or modern persuasion though, in particular, I think what, what if someone watching it has been thinking a lot about that person they loved so long ago and I like the idea that if someone is in your thoughts, 
a whole lot. Chances are they're probably thinking of these. Um, in this in this movie, that's that's definitely what's going on. And there's a sense that it's never too late to fall in love all over again with the person you're meant to be with. Mm. So I just, I really believe in my core that it is never, nothing is ever set in stone until we're done with this life. The possibilities when you wake up in the morning are endless. And the fact that Ren wakes up on an ordinary day, her life is going pretty well and she's, she's happy enough. But then this man that she's always thought was probably the one, if she could have a one, he comes back into her life and she has to work out whether this is her closure to finally put him in the past forever or did he come back in because they're meant to get it right this time. I think that's something I could certainly relate to and I hope that people watching it, whether they're in a relationship or not, will will find themselves inspired to fall in love all over again with this movie. Well, okay, thank you so much, Alicia Witt, for calling into our show again. It's <laughs> <laughs> nice to talk to you again, Fran. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Bye. And Modern Persuasion is out now in virtual theaters online. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station. Wake up, all the builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all lend a hand. The only thing we have to do is put it in our minds. Surely things will work out, they do it every time. Change again, change again, just you and me. Change again, change again, go alone.